The Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast is sponsored by Prairie Care. You know, going through the process of getting help with your mental health can be very overwhelming. I definitely know that from firsthand experience. Prairie Care can help guide you through it and get you in touch with the help that you need. They've been offering mental health services to all ages in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2005. Whether you're looking for clinical services, a specialty outpatient program, or a more intensive level of care like inpatient treatment, Prairie Care has you and your family covered. Visit prairie-care.com to learn more. That's prairie-care.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome, welcome, welcome into this episode of the Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast. Wonderful to have you here, as always, holding space for how each and every one of you are showing up here in this moment and hope you are being gentle with you. Uh, This week on the podcast, I am talking to Evan Hansen. Um, Evan lives in Rochester, Minnesota, and this is really, really powerful stuff. So Evan portaged or carried a canoe over 300 miles across the state of Minnesota back in 2021. And he did this to to raise awareness about suicide prevention. And, and that canoe that he was carrying had names written on it of, of people who have died by suicide. And so in this episode, Evan shares much more about why he decided to do this, what that journey was like. Um, he shares his own mental health story his own personal connection to, to mental health and um, also opens up about kind of opening up to taking medication for his mental health as, as a person of faith. And, and he touches on much more in addition to all of that as well. Uh, so, so grateful that, that Evan took the time to chat. I was really, really honored to sit down and talk to him I uh, want to give give you all a heads up. As you can imagine, the topic of suicide does come up in this episode. And so just want to give you a heads up there. Really um, take good care of yourself around that. Um, and if you know that that is a particular subject that's really hard for you to uh, to listen to and, and, and hear about, um, encourage you to, to set some good boundaries for yourself around that. So... As always, my friends, hope that you um, take what serves you from this conversation and, and go ahead and leave the rest, sending each and every one of you a whole lot of love. And here we go, my, my conversation with Evan Hansen. Evan, thank you so much. For, for taking the time to, to join me here on, on the podcast. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. I, I have to ask this right off the bat. Do, do people bring up the, the musical Dear Evan Hansen quite often when they talk to you? <laughs> they, they do. Um, ever since it came out, I would get messages on my Facebook page just from friends. And um, yeah. I even have, I've had a couple people ask if, the musicals about me or if I get any proceeds from it I'm like nope it's definitely not about me and I wish I got some proceeds from it because it's doing really well but um I didn't even realize that there was that much of a connection with what the musical was about until about I think August of 2021 when the trailer for the movie came out yep it is like my all-time favorite musical so I'm just gonna pretend like you're like the lead actor from the original <laughs> Broadway cast or something. Maybe we'll just, we'll just pretend over the next hour. We, we can do that. As long as that's a flattering thing and as long as you don't ask me to sing, I'll be good with that. Yeah, okay, okay. Sounds, sounds like a plan. Um, well, I am I, I'm really, really looking forward to, to just learning more more about your story. I've had a chance to, to kind of research and, and read about your, your journey. Um, 
And I would imagine, you know, some people listening to this know about your journey. You walked over 300 miles. Um, this was back in 2021, right? Yep. You got it. Okay. And you were, you were carrying a canoe. Mm-hmm. Um, describe to people just kind of what that journey was all about. That journey, in a nutshell, was about shedding light on the invisible burdens that those who have died by suicide have carried, as well as exposing the weight of grief that their loved ones continue to bear and to continue to show those that are suffering from mental health issues, psychological trauma, substance use disorder, PTSD, whatever, or currently undergoing grief of the loss of a loved one that um, they are not alone, they are not a burden, and that they are loved. Yeah. And so correct me if I'm wrong here. So you started on the South Dakota, Minnesota border. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Near Sioux Falls? You got it. Yep. And you literally walked across the entire state of Minnesota and, and ended on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border near Win- Winona. Um, yep. How long did that take you to do? Um. From start to finish, 35 days. So 30 days of walking, five days of rest here and there. Wow. How, how, how many miles were you generally covering in a day? Um, it would depend. I'd say between 10 to 12, some days more, some days less. So, But yeah, around the 10 to 12 mark. Okay. And what, what prompted this? What, what, what made you decide that, that you wanted to do it? I was prompted to do this for a couple reasons. Um, the curiosity of carrying or portaging a canoe a really long distance kind of weaseled its way into my mind after I got done working for her outward bound up in Ely, Minnesota. Um, I had just gotten done leading some wilderness trips and was leading mm-hmm. my friends on our own personal expedition and started to wonder how far we could really carry really lightweight canoes. I knew that the... Um, Portage marathons they do in Ely are a thing, and I've known about other people who have pushed the limits in this regard, but I really wondered if I got a really lightweight canoe and really put my mind to it, how far I could walk. And having just come off the Appalachian Trail, which is a 2,200-mile journey, really kind of altered my perception of how far I could go and what I was capable of. So in terms of the journey that I just come off of, 300 miles was a drop in the bucket, let alone if I took it step by step, day by day. So I had that kind of endurance, long distance mentality already um, forged from six months of walking in the woods. And um, I kind of, I walked the Appalachian Trail for a specific reason, which we can get into later if you want. But um, I realized that the journey carrying a canoe would be empty without a purpose and it would be it felt really selfish of me to Mm. just carry a canoe for its own sake i felt like i could be spending my time doing a little bit more for others than just walking in the woods so i started thinking of different causes that i could portage for i'd seen people do fundraisers um, attached to different outdoor endeavors so i figured hey why not portage for a purpose and I started to think of different causes to portage for. And when I was doing that, um, I began to realize that I began to realize that my thought process was really conceited, self-righteous and hypocritical because I was planning on using the plights of others as a pillar on which to stand just so I could justify going off and doing this thing and pretending like I was doing it for the betterment of others. And I realized that it was an incredibly conceited notion. So I decided to let the purpose find me. And as life went on in the following months, um, three different people from different areas of my life were lost to suicide right around the same time that the COVID-19 pandemic started sweeping around the globe. So um, even though they weren't individuals who I knew super duper personally, I really saw the weight of grief that flooded through the different communities of my life. And especially with the restrictions of COVID, it felt like all that people could really do at that time for 
certain individuals was to really post a comment on social media saying, I'm so sorry for your loss and offer some donations for um, different suicide prevention fundraisers that popped up. And those are all fine and dandy, but I felt like more needed to be done. And that's when I started to realize that carrying a canoe a really long distance is a really good metaphor for bringing light to something that's not really tangible. You can't really, when someone has cancer, when someone has a physical ailment, oftentimes you can see the toll that that takes on them. If someone's undergoing uh, mental or emotional trauma, oftentimes that's not as easy to see. And so I figured that this would be a good way to bring that to light and also then to turn it into a walking memorial by writing the names of those who are lost to suicide on the canoe. That idea is not original. I've seen that being done before with different pieces of outdoor equipment for different purposes. Um, but I decided to add the names of suicide victims instead of those who supported the cause to kind of wow. hopefully create a sense of closure for um, for the loved ones who lost people to suicide. And um, yeah. S- Southern Minnesota was not my original route, <laughs> as you probably know, too. Yeah, you were initially going to go along the Superior Hiking Trail, right? Mm-hmm. You got it. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. The Superior Hiking Trail is a 310 plus mile long trail that goes along the North Shore of Minnesota, connecting Wisconsin to Canada. And when you portage, typically, whether you're in the boundary waters, portages are measured with rods. So if you break it down with measurements and numbers, 360 rods are in one mile. So that equaled about 100,000 rods on the Superior Hiking Trail. And I really like that nice round number. So that was a cool thing to go mm-hmm. for. And I thought, oh my gosh, how badass would this be to be, you know, the first person to forge a canoe along a long trail. It's a super Minnesotan awesome thing to do. That's really unique. And eventually there were a bunch of different challenges that were brought to light in the summer of 2021. Um, wildfires, drought, bears, um, a bunch of different things that ultimately led me to shift my route into southern Minnesota, keeping the distance the same, but trading yeah. mountains and valleys for um, prairies and bluffs. Yeah. You, you didn't want to be hanging out with the bears on a regular basis? No, not too often. <laughs> and I feel a little, a little scary. Yeah. I've had a couple encounters with bears, and I like to keep them to a minimum if I can. Smart. Good call. Very, very good call. So, um, yeah, and I want to encourage everybody who's listening to this to, to look up, like to Google your name, look, you know, look up Portage for a, um, for a purpose. Cause it, it's really incredible to, to see all these pictures of you. I mean, you're literally for people who don't know what portaging is, right. Which I actually didn't really know before, before I looked up your story, like you're literally mm-hmm. holding the canoe like over your head. I mean, is the, is the canoe like resting on your shoulders or how did you carry it? Kind of. And so normally when you carry a canoe on the inside of it, like the little cupped part where you would normally sit, there's a yeah. yoke that runs along the inside of it between the edges. And depending on the canoe, that can be either fixed and attached or it can be removable. Because I opted for a really lightweight canoe and I bought a canoe that was heavier and ended up switching to a much lighter one. The canoe I ended up carrying was only 15 pounds and about 10 feet long, which is very, very small and about the lightest you can buy. Mm. That's a whole story in and of itself. But I, um, the wonderful people at Paragas helped me select a yoke and they donated one. I jerry-rigged it a little bit. So essentially it's a wooden beam with some shoulder pads on it. And I trained and I walked with, I have a couple different backpacks excuse me. And I walked with my specific, more robust backpack because the yoke, when it was behind my neck, if I needed to tip the canoe up, it would kind of rest on the straps and offload some of it to my hips. So Mm -hmm. when I would lead trips in the boundary waters for whichever organization, Outward Bound or Camp Olson, those canoes, because they're a little bit more robust and meant to stand, um, extended back-to-back expeditions they could range from 50 to 80 pounds and be 16 and a half feet in length so in terms of weight it's it looks much more impressive than it actually is the cumbersome thing about switching routes was the wind 
which just turned the canoe into one giant sail and kind of began yeah. pushing around a little bit. Yeah. And the, did you have any idea how many names were, are on the canoe? Are on the canoe right now? Or, or I guess maybe when you pour, when you actually went through that, that journey, how many, how many names you were physically walking with on that canoe? Um, I tried to keep track as I went and I ended up archiving them at the end. So I know the exact number we have. Um, Amazing. Yeah. But, and that's a process in and of itself. I, it, it was kind of a bittersweet double-edged sword hope for me to have. On one hand, I really hoped that we would get a lot of names so that way people would feel comfortable and open about sharing their losses. On the other hand, I didn't want that many names because then that means that there's that many suicides in the surrounding area so while i feel blessed to be a part of the endeavor that helps celebrate all the people written on the canoe it is equally as heartbreaking to see how many people were lost to suicide yeah yeah how did those names end up on the canoe was it were these were you writing these on these names on the canoe? Were these other people writing them on the on the canoe? How what did that process look like? A combination of both, and I think I'll circle okay. back a little bit to talk about the Superior Hiking Trail and how that made a difference in that too, if that's okay with you. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. So I originally, when I set off to do the Superior Hiking Trail, I mean, I reached out to the Superior Hiking Trail Association, got in touch with them, tried to hammer out everything logistically. Um, and when I set off to do that, in my mind, it's kind of almost like a mismatch of, um, in the end, I realized that that would just be a mismatch of, um, kind of almost love languages, so to speak, like societal love languages, because even though I spent two years planning and visualizing portaging a canoe along the superior hiking trail, once I had to shift routes and go across Southern Minnesota, where I realized none of the wildfires were, none of the bears were, none of the drought really hit that hard. When I started to tell people close to me, they seemed almost more taken aback by that because I realized that the vast majority of people have a better concept for walking across a state versus just some obscure trail that maybe not many people are familiar with in Northern Minnesota. I mean, with Minnesota, a lot of people are familiar with the SHT, but if I wanted to really make that reach, I think a lot more people could conceptualize walking across a state. Yeah. And, and also the fact that it was going through communities that we were trying to help and it would be, it would be more of a visual instead of being tucked away in the woods where only a handful of people might see me, people driving down the side of the road can kind of see what I was doing. And um, I'd worked with the National Alliance of Southeast Minnesota or NAMI in Rochester, and they acted as the recipient and the catalyst professionally for my fundraising efforts. So I was able to work with them to create an online donation platform and an online name submission form, which is kind of where we're touching base at now. So um, originally the plan was to just, we had an event where we invited people to write the names of loved ones they lost in the canoe. And we offered people the opportunity to submit names online of people they lost to suicide. And because I was at first going to be tucked away in the woods, that's how we figured that most of the names would come about. And we didn't really know. We didn't know what to expect for how many names we'd receive. But the plan was just to receive them about once a week. And I would update them in the woods with the Sharpies I'd carry. What ended up actually happening was when I carried the canoe just down the country roads along southern Minnesota, um, at first, before word really spread, which was another funny thing, we really tried to gain media traction and it got nowhere and then it just kind of organically flared up a little bit. Um, But at first, when I was in the really remote rural parts, I'd have farmers pull over and say, hey, buddy, are you looking for a lake? Like, are you on your way to the river? Do you need a ride? There weren't. There was a good amount of names in the canoe, but there weren't that many where it stood out drastically. And then as people pulled over, I'd tell them what I was doing. And almost everyone who pulled over knew someone that they had lost to suicide. And they would either volunteer to write the name on the canoe or ask me to do it. And then oftentimes, which something I didn't expect is they would provide in-person donations. So they would just hand me cash to give to NAMI, which... 
I feel like I'm pretty prepared, but in terms of what I prepared for for that is I just, I had a QR code on my phone that would link them to the donation page. And I figured, yeah, if, you know, some, I figured someone's walking with a canoe in Minnesota. It's not the weirdest thing in the world. Maybe if someone sees something, they pull over, they're curious. Um, but yeah, it became a frequent endeavor once word got out that people would stop tell their suicide story, tell their suicide survivor story, do an interview, take a picture, offer a donation or snacks or a place to stay, different things like that. So, which was really amazing considering how rural the route was for most of it. Yeah. What, what did, um, what did those moments mean to you along the way to have, to have those interactions with, with people that came up to you? It was a lot to process in the moment. And I was very dead set on finishing the journey and kind of having that labor of love be completed. So it wasn't until after the journey was over that everything started to sink in. Um, But even towards the last days of the journey, I, um, I kind of reflected back on some, on a thought I had while I was on the Appalachian trail. And um, that was the, um, the mountains don't need me, but people do. And I felt like every time I turned towards the mountains or I was walking through the woods, um, I was taking time away from where I could potentially be helping others. And that's not to say my other journey didn't have its own merits and benefits, but, and I don't go on my own journeys now, but spending six months walking through the woods in and of itself, I started to realize my time could be better spent elsewhere. And so in the last Hmm. days of the journey, as I was um, starting to go up into the bluffs right around Winona and things like that. Um, it really, what the journey turned into and especially what it turned into organically, like it'd be one thing if we really pressed it and we kind of fabricated it, but with how organic it was and the amount of interactions that was had, um, those 313 miles, I think were more meaningful to me than the 2,200 along the Appalachian mountains. So wow. there was much more purpose and meaning and fulfillment and good to be done in that small chunk than there was along the entire East coast. Amazing. Did you ever have like any moments along the way where you were, you would just look at those names like and kind of reflect on the fact that you were literally carrying those on your back? for that for that amount of time did it did it motivate you it definitely did motivate me i think there were nuggets of time where certain names would stand out or certain stories would stand out but Mm -hmm. because of prior work experience just dealing with different individuals who have different types of trauma and things like that i'd gotten really good at rational detachment so being able to exercise empathy without really letting it weigh me down but it was also such a gradual, a gradual and not a gradual thing because there would be times where I'd get a name submission and it was 150 names. I'd write those all out in an evening and it got to the point where, because I saw the thing from start to finish, it's almost like the frog in the boiling water. The water kept getting warmer and warmer and I didn't really realize it. And yeah. so someone who saw the canoe in the beginning, it has a hundred and something names on it versus in the end where it had over 600, I was there, you know, writing down a lot of the names. I was there while people were writing names on it. And so to me, it was almost kind of like this slow, steady change that I didn't really digest until once again, probably more towards the end of the journey and probably something that I didn't really let myself digest because if I let myself feel all that, it would probably be really crippling, I would imagine. Um, But it was definitely... Um, led to a lot of introspection and motivation. Um, But yeah, I think there was just some probably emotional defenses I had up just to keep myself moving forward. What do you, what do you remember about that moment when it, when it came to an end? Cause you, cause you ended at a really special place, right? I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of blanking on the name of it, but there's stones and and a really, really beautiful setting where it all came to a, to an end. Yeah. So I ended up ending at, Kinstone um, in Fountain City, Wisconsin, right across the Winona Bridge. 
I, when I originally, so I'm a very visual person. So when I hiked the Appalachian Trail and I went southbound, the ending is an archway, a really cool stone archway. And I hadn't seen it in person. So I just visualized that for six months. And that was kind of my tunnel vision, so to speak. Mm-hmm. When I planned on doing the Superior Hiking Trail, I planned on going southbound as well. And there's a wooden archway that borders right along the end um, into Wisconsin. And so I visualized that. And when I had to switch gears last minute, I looked and I plotted the route so that way it'd be exactly 100,000 rods. And on the end of the Winona Bridge, when I dropped um, down on Google Maps, it looked like there was this rock with a heart-shaped boulder on it or a heart-shaped watermark. I thought, oh, that seems like a really sweet place to end. And then thankfully, my mom scouted out the area when she picked me up one of my last days before I actually made it to Winona. And there was actually a construction trailer and a porter potty there. And I was thinking to myself, that's not the best way to end this. I want to do a little bit yeah. better than that. And so we scouted out a place called Angel's Bluff. I ended up getting lost up there. Um, there aren't really well-maintained trails there. Um, and so we looked at maps once again and found that there was this place called Kinstone, which I had kind of known about from some research, but I knew that they weren't open um, for the full year. And then there was a it's a very tiny admission fee. It was $5 then. I think it's only $10 now. Uh-huh. And the only thing that didn't sit well with me there was that it wasn't open all year round, so it wouldn't be fully accessible necessarily if people wanted to go back and walk the final steps or have some remembrance. But sure. after my mom and I toured it and met with the owner, it was clear that the serenity behind it and the meaning that it has was just, I couldn't have created a better ending if I wanted to. And so the owner was gracious enough within like a 24, 48 hour window to let us invite people and end the journey there. Cool. And did I see somewhere that like the the canoe, the actual canoe is going to be on display in that area? Yeah, it will be. So um, it's been safe and sound in my friend's garage. Thank you, Chad and Katie. (laughs) They've been great letting me keep it there and letting me archive it and touch things up. But um, I just... Nami helped me out getting a display, so I'm going to troubleshoot that. But okay. every year we're trying to do a Portage 5K up the last 5K of the bluff that I climbed on my last day. And as kind of cool. a memorial with the whole fire ceremony and everything. So this cool. year should be the year that um, the canoe finds its home. Okay. And I know you, do you, have, you have that 5K coming up soon, don't you? Yep, we're going to try to make it every second Saturday of October. So it is October 14th this year, starting at 10 a.m. down um, by Bluffside in Wisconsin. There's kind of a little bar and grill down there. I can't remember the name, but there's a public street there. And then we walk up, up the bluff, up the road to Kinstone, the last 5K, and then we rest there, and then we write messages to loved ones who have died by suicide and send them up to them in a fire ceremony, just symbolically. And we do have an online donation platform for that, as well as an online messaging board for that, for if someone can't make it, they can still submit messages to loved ones that will print off and happily send those up as well. And we also have a continuation of Portage for a Purpose, which is Paddles for a Purpose, um, it was really clear how much writing the names in the canoe meant to other people. And it felt appropriate to just have that be from the start of the journey to the end, especially since the canoe is pretty much full now, unfortunately. So each year we're, we have a new canoe paddle where we're allowing people to write the names of loved ones they've lost to suicide. So that'll be there as well. There's also a form where people can fill out names of loved ones they've lost to suicide to be written on the paddles as well. That can all be found on the uh, Facebook page for Portage for a Purpose or on Kinstone's Facebook page as well. Okay. All of I'll those links sure are, link. yeah. Yeah, I'll make sure that I link up to that too in the show notes of this episode. I'll make Thank sure that, that, yeah, that people have access to that. I want to talk a little bit too. I know, I know you, along with this this journey and, and the work that you're doing, raising awareness, um, and honoring all all these names and stories, um, you have your own story as as well mm-hmm. of of maneuvering um, 
struggles when it comes to your mental health. I'm curious what you're, what you're, what you're comfortable sharing about that. Oh yeah, I can share. I'll share it all. That's no problem. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a real personal connection to this for you as well. There is. And I think each one of us has our own mental health journey in one way or another, whether that's a very blessed journey where, um, where one lives a very happy, full, joyous life with, um, little trauma or whether or not someone has become very resilient and has overcome a lot of trauma. I think we all have our own stories and I'm more than happy to share mine as well. Um, for the full long story, I can start back when I was born. I was born a little bit early, just about a month early. And we think because of that, I had some interoceptive sensory issues when I was born, basically just meant that I was a sensitive kid physically um, had a really strong mind-body connection. Loud noises were scary. I had some muscles that were underdeveloped. Had to use a special booster seat. Had to have some vision therapy to correct some vision issues. Um, a couple different things right off the bat that led to early onset anxiety, especially in a health-related sense. So since I was probably five to ten years old, I've managed anxiety. And then one day when I was in high school... I approached my mom and I said, mom, I'm getting good grades. I have really nice friends. I don't really get bullied, but I'm just really sad. And both my parents, thankfully, are um, well-versed in mental health and there's really no stigma there. So my mom knew that we have a family history of that. So right away, um, they had me see a psychiatrist and different therapists until we found the right one. And then I was treated with a low dose of medication for better part of a decade where I managed it throughout college and several suicidal ideations followed that never any plans, never any actions. It's not that I wanted to die. It's just that I didn't want to live anymore. I just didn't want that mental, emotional anguish, which like I said, I had a really blessed life objectively. I mean, physically healthy. It's, it's a real kicker because I I'm, pretty physically healthy my doctor will tell me that and then i've sent myself to the er so many times because the physical symptoms of of anxiety and depression take such a toll on you physically that they don't show up on a physiological test usually so it's kind of a kicker to be told that you're incredibly healthy and that you know that you're healthy but you just feel like you're crumbling from the inside out um and then I eventually stopped taking the medication on my own accord because I came to the conclusion that it made me less empathetic and I didn't want to lose that part of myself. I figured it'd be better to, to suffer a little bit and have empathy than one or the other. Um, so I stopped taking that for about five years or so. And then up until recently, everything kind of culminated from just a bunch of different things going on in life to where actually this year um, in January on my birthday, I admitted myself to um, an inpatient program in Rochester, Minnesota in Generos, where I was in the hospital for a week um, just to kind of get myself back on track. I mean, I lost a bunch of weight um, and I had trouble eating, had trouble sleeping, just a bunch of the bare necessities that you could do. I just had trouble doing and it's yeah. like I said, a, a kicker. I mean, during this happened during the pandemic too, where when I was unemployed for a little bit, I didn't feel like I had the motivation to get up off the couch and it took every ounce of my strength to get up and make myself some noodles. And I thought, yeah. what the hell? I've like a year ago, two years ago, I had, you know, I was going over mountain ridges. I was hiking 25 miles a day with the pack on my back. And now I can't go from the bed to the kitchen. Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, but once I got stabilized there, um, I was discharged and then I went to Prairie care for some partial hospitalization programs for about a month. Um, and that, that did wonders and, um, then got back on track with my work. And then eventually I got recruited actually pretty recently to work as a, um, peer support specialist, which is someone who walks with others on their own mental health journey. And one of the prerequisites for that is to have your own mental health journey as well. So while it sucked during the time and while I still don't wish it on anyone, I think there was 
overall a benefit to that suffering that I underwent. And I think there yeah. will be more to apply that to in the future. So I think a lot of, a lot came out of that suffering, but, um, it's been an ongoing battle. It will be an ongoing battle. Um, just takes, I've been trying to approach it with a lot of grace, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and trying to put my faith back into place. Yeah. I was, um, I was looking at something that I, I thought was really powerful. Something that, um, that you wrote on your Facebook page where you said you're, you're kind of at a place now where you, where you can place your, your Bible and Prozac on the same shelf. Yeah. Um, Tell me more about, about what you meant behind that. <laughs> I forgot I had written that. And there's actually now a song called, um, I think, God and Prozac, which is... God and Prozac. Yeah, Or something that. like that. Yeah, that's a, which is a really good song. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, um, I grew up a Christian. And then after the Appalachian Trail, I had somewhat of what you would call a spiritual bender. Um, I had a lot of really good critical thinking discussions with people from a lot of different backgrounds. And I realized that um, ultimately I believe what I believe because of how I was raised. And I thought, well, there's a lot of harmful ideologies that come if you just are raised with something. And so that's not a great reason in and of itself to believe in something. So then I sat myself, then I said, okay, well, I've always put my faith in a really high place in my life. And so I should approach this from a more serious perspective. And so I told myself, okay, what I'm going to be focused on from now on is the truth, an objective truth, not my truth, not what makes me comfortable, not what makes me sleep better at night, but the nitty gritty, rugged, jagged, hard, cold truth, objectively. I said, whether I come to the conclusion that there is a God, there is no God, there's a million gods, whatever, the closest thing that I can come to from a critical thinking standpoint and from a faith-based standpoint, um, that's how I will conduct myself. And so then I broke things down. I thought, okay, well, I can spend a hundred lifetimes studying all the world religions, but I thought about it logically and I thought, okay, if the monotheistic religions are true, then that means that the polytheistic religions would be false by proxy. And out of the three major monotheistic religions, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the one I was most familiar with already was Christianity, and that was the one that had the least amount of immediate language barriers, um, not including translational barriers. But So I started to dive into that for myself, um, learned about what the Bible actually is, and really started to research and listen to lectures of a lot of different people's take on who we are, why we're here, and what started it all from um, atheist professors, agnostic professors, Christian professors, scientists who had different points of view, um, theologians who had different points of view. And I was tugged back and forth so much, and I realized, okay, intellect is not necessarily a guarantee of, um, of expressing what is true, and neither is articulation. So right. that whole thing was a process of in and of itself. And I finally came full circle, um, eventually, and it's still an ongoing process, but towards, um, towards the time when I was going to be hospitalized, I was experiencing different panic attacks at work and I was really unable to do my job. And, um, one of my therapists prescribed me with, um, a short acting anxiety medication. And for some reason, even though I was brought up to to believe that, you know, medication is a tool to help yeah. people. For some reason, I got it into my own head and no one told me this. I just got it into my own head that I needed to be hyper independent and that I needed to rely on myself. And part of that came from anxiety and fear. I thought, okay, well, we had supply chain shortages. If I'm not able to, and a lot of this comes from emergency preparedness to just different levels of thinking, how to plan for backcountry things and having it bleed over in different parts of my life. But yeah. I thought, okay, if I, if there's no more Prozac in the stores, I got to learn how to manage without that. And if we have food uh, chain shortages, I have to learn how to deal with that. So I wouldn't, and I, you know, knew from reading different books, okay, I know prisoners of war were able to do hard labor with like a softball size thing of rice at the end of the day. 
I can get away with something similar to that. And so I would manage my resources in a way where I was preparing for the worst, even though probably people going through that too wouldn't even have the mentality I did. And it kept evolving into where I thought, okay, I would have different existential crises on the daily as a lot of people do now with the amount of information we consume. So I thought, okay, you know, what's, what's the truth about global warming? Should I even be driving my car five minutes to the gym to take care of my physical health? No, I'm not worth it. Should I, what food should I eat? Oh, I shouldn't eat this because it comes in plastic. I'm not worth the calories. I'm not worth the, um, I'm not worth the, the packaging this comes in and just kind of like that guilt that just stemmed from my, myself. And it led to me thinking, okay, um, and there's different schools of thought on this. I mean, I would always recommend talking to someone in person, um, versus going online. That's such a rabbit hole that leads to so many different things. Um, and it, and you go and do it alone, even though you're surrounded by people online, you go into those rabbit holes alone. But, um, I saw different takes on, okay, well, you know, if you take medication, you don't have enough faith. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true, but okay. Should I, what should I expect to, to get from God in this? And I know he's not a genie in a bottle that's there to answer every whim. Um, but something that I thought of either when I was in Generos or when I was in, um, the PHP program was I, I look at the good Samaritan parable pretty often. I think that's my favorite parable and I'm not really well read with the Bible. I, I try to do my best to view it as a roadmap and as the absolute truth, but I'm, that's my own laziness at play to not do my own research there. But, um, in terms of the good Samaritan parable, I feel like a lot of times I've resonated with the, um, the person trying to validate themselves when asking Jesus about the law, trying to make themselves justified. I feel like I've been the person who's avoided the person on the side of the road. I've been the person helping the person on the side of the road. But for the first time I was realizing that I was the person on the side of the road and I was rejecting the, you know, the oil and wine that the Samaritans were offering me and expecting some like big stream of light, some grandiose sign to come down. Um, Mm. And have this major transformation it's kind of like that story i think in um in the pursuit of happiness where the little boy talks about the drowning man being out at sea and all the boats that pass by him and he says no no god's gonna save me god's gonna save me and then he drowns and he gets to heaven he says god what the heck why didn't you save me and he said well i sent you a bunch of boats you idiot so yeah, yeah. um but yeah i mean i was i was praying before i took my medication like like dear god i'm struggling please know that this isn't in like absence of faith. This is just me, you know, trying to get my head right. And so there was, and like I said, no one told me that I didn't really ingest anything from online or take anything to heart that would have really swayed that a lot of that was just this self-stimulated guilt. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in, in that example, the Prozac being something that was, that was a boat, for you something to, mm-hmm. to kind of help like, like give, giving yourself that permission yeah. of sorts to be able yeah. to to allow that to be a tool for you to, yeah. to take care of yourself yeah and i think we have to be careful too with what we consider to be used as a tool i think oftentimes we can overstep into things that are ultimately harmful but yeah i kind of i kind of thought okay i think it's time to to accept the accept the vinegar and wine accept the oil and wine and and let myself start getting better yeah, I think medication is such a um, can be such a, a hot button issue for so many people who experience struggles with their mental health, myself included. I, I know for mm-hmm. me there was a lot of fear around, um, yeah, is it going to change me? Is it going to take away my creativity? Is this like a, mm-hmm. a cop out? Is this like an easy way out? Am I not going to get you know? I'm not going to feel the depths of the human experience anymore. And I'm, it's going to, I'm going to be robbed of the lessons from those spaces. You know, like it's, our, our mind can really create a lot of noise around that. And I think that is so powerful for you as a, um, somebody who identifies, it sounds like as Christian mm-hmm. yep. to also be able to speak out about this and say that medication, it sounds like has been helpful for you. Um, that's, that's, it's a really, really powerful message that I think more people need to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I appreciate you being open about that. Thank you.
yeah, and yeah. I think it, I think that, like you said, that conversation is hot button, and they're especially with developments of um, psychedelics and psych- psychotropics being used to treat severe PTSD. There's a lot, a lot more um, to be said about those things that we probably just don't know yet. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it's just important to, like I said, approach that with grace and to kind of say, okay is this a tool for healing is this something that pushes things to the side being very um i don't want to say cautious but very um very mindful when we pursue those things because i tried okay maybe diet and exercise will help me maybe taking vitamins will help me and yeah vitamins improve my mood my anxiety was still through the roof and those were it was a bunch of different things. It's one step of many. I don't think medication is a one size fits all solution, but it's definitely one of a lot of people will tell you that it's several, it's one of many supports that can lead to an overall healthier well-being in a clear way to see things. Totally. And I talked about it a lot on this podcast, this concept of having a, like a mental health toolkit. That mm-hmm. visual for me has really helped me. You know, it's, it's having a number of different things um, in that toolkit day in and day out that, like you said, doesn't magically solve all yeah. my problems or yeah. make anxiety go away. It just mm-hmm. gets me to a place where I can at least show up for my life and, and almost give me access to the tools needed mentally to be able to like ride the waves of emotion and ride the waves of the thoughts that come up throughout the day. Um, so I think that's a, it's a huge distinction because I, there's, there's so much, there's so much messaging out there around, you know, just do this and then you won't feel anxiety and, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and again, and who I, and I'm not here to say that maybe that does happen for some people, but I, that hasn't really been the case in my life. Mm -hmm. And I, and so I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think I think it's a, it can be a much more um, I don't know if realistic is the right word, but maybe just a healthier way to look at it. That we're just trying to put as many things in that toolkit as we can, so that we can mm-hmm. maneuver this human experience that we're all finding ourselves in. Yeah. We want there to be. I think a lot of us want there to be a one size fix all thing. We want there to be a tool that fixes everything, whether or not that's with our house, with ourselves, with our relationships. And oftentimes it's not that easy, no matter how much we want it to be. Totally. Well, and I think what's dangerous about that mentality too, of like, do this and you'll never feel anxiety again is, um, we start to feel like we're doing something wrong when anxiety shows up then, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like if we're, we're really, really fixated Mm -hmm. on, I never, I don't want to feel anxiety. Anxiety can't be here. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the second that it shows up, it's like, oh, shoot, I've done something wrong and mm-hmm. there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. And, a, and a really good way too to think about that from my experience um, is thinking of things like anxiety as, and depression, not necessarily as negative, but perhaps as mistimed. So it was explained to me that one thing that really helped me was I was told by my mom that she said, Evan, your, you know, your body is doing what it's supposed to, just not at the right time. She described anxiety as almost like an alarm and I couldn't hit snooze or something like that. Um, because your body, your physiology is responding to danger. It's responding correctly. It's just responding to the wrong thing. Um, and one thing I've used, a tool I've used for myself that's been pretty successful is if I have a fear or a different feeling that pops up. So I'll use an example of driving. I was in a pretty bad car wreck back in, oh gosh, December of 2020, I want to say. And I walked away unscathed, but it was a pretty gnarly one. Um, No one was hurt. Um, But I had a lot of fear attached to driving for a bit. And what we were taught, one of the things we were taught at Prairie Care, one of the tools in our toolkit is to imagine that you're on a bus or on a car and that all of your feelings and different emotions are passengers. And when one of them comes up and starts to dominate, they're in the passenger seat, they're trying to take the wheel, you address them and you say, okay, 
so if I say that fear would be there, I would literally turn and pretend like I would personify these things because it makes it much more concrete and less abstract for me. So I would turn and I would say, okay, fear, I see what you're doing. I see that you're here. I appreciate you, but I'm going to take the wheel. Thanks for being here. And so it's yes. kind of recognizing those things and then validating them too. Like, hey, you're here for a reason. I get that, but I don't need you right now. Um, versus trying totally. to just push it away or, or manipulate it and going along that route with any time I was afraid of something, repeating it over and over out loud or if I was in public in my head until it lost all um, all sense of meaning. So if I was afraid about um, insurance or something, losing insurance because I was on short-term disability, which wasn't really a worry because I was on short-term disability, but I would just think to myself, okay, no insurance, no insurance, no insurance until it just didn't sound like anything because then I wasn't really skirting away from the different anxieties. I was just facing them head on um, uh -huh. until they just didn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I hear in for sure in that, in that bus example, which is honestly one of my favorite metaphors ever. I love that you brought that up. I talk <laughs> about it all the time. It has helped me so much. Mm -hmm. Um, is yeah instead of it's it's an allowing of it right it, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more of like an allowing of the fear letting the fear be there mm -hmm. um saying to the fear like i, I i'm still going to decide where we're where, where, where this bus is headed right i'm still in the driver's seat but you can mm -hmm. i'm not going to shove you off the bus but you got to sit in the back and yeah. come along for the ride yeah um and i'm not going to sit here and fight with you all day and try to get you off the bus because that's just going to make it grow strong go stronger um Mm -hmm. But I, I loved, I love that you brought that up because yeah. that's, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful metaphor. It is. And another thing that I've really liked to, um, that's been good to reframe is with some of the existential things, which I know a lot of people now, um, are coming to grasp, like just gripping really hard just because of the amount of, like I said, information we have, I've done my best to, instead of viewing it as uncertainty, viewing it as mystery and curiosity. Mm. So instead of having to exist in a time and place where I won't know everything and I won't have all my questions answered and I never will, looking at it as a privilege to walk through life um, with uncertainty and mystery on the horizon and knowing that I won't know everything and having that be a blessing. So that's been a very critical reframe as well. As we kind of wrap up here, um, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but what's maybe the, the greatest thing that you've learned um, through this, this portage journey that, that you've kind of, I know, I know it was a couple years ago, but it's there. Hmm. Um, there's something as you've had time to reflect on it. And I know you've written a book, which we'll, we'll link up to in the, yeah. in, in the show notes as well that we want to, that we want to let people know. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I, it's, it's hard to funnel this stuff down into a single, like, what have you learned? But I'm curious if there's something that really stands out. It's hard to really narrow it down to, to one lesson in and of itself. But I think a lot of times we're, we're spent so focused on what we want to do and what we want individually, we put ourselves at the center, which to some point is an important thing to do because you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself first. Um, but I think a big theme that stemmed throughout the journey as problems arose and as I had to shift gears and kind of leave my own dream behind and kind of break the perfectionism and put my pride aside is that the more, even though I did something, because here, here's a spoiler that's in the book. There's a secret in it, which I've kind of discussed before. But the big secret about the portage is that once it got close to doing it, I really didn't want to do it anymore. Mm. Um, as I started, because like I said, the people who were lost in my life to suicide weren't very close to me. And as I started to heal um, and kind of, regroup from those losses I felt my own personal sense of closure and I thought okay well certainly I can stop living that kind of nomadic lifestyle and have some security and be anchored and 
you know, work at a nonprofit and do something meaningful in a way that's more traditional. And I don't have to go about this this way to run myself through the ringer again and walk a long distance because at the time only NAMI really knew about that. So I wasn't really under any obligation to see it through. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted to, I decided to try to be a better man than I wanted to be. And that was looking out at a path that I thought a righteous man would take and following in those footsteps. I'm not saying that I'm a righteous man by any stretch of the imagination, but that was just kind of the framework that I was trying to use. But Mm -hmm. to wrap it all up in a bow, I think the more I gave of myself in a way that I didn't want to give, the less I put myself at the center of it, the more good was done. Um, The more I personally felt fulfilled and the more objective good was done from other people. I mean, you can break it down and look at what would have potentially happened if I portaged the Superior Hiking Trail. I can guarantee not as many people would have seen me. I mean, even if it gained a ton of media attention, like a ton, no one's going to drive up there for that, or not a lot of people are going to drive up there for that, Uh versus just people pulling in off the side of the road. So because I was able to... Um, to sacrifice the parts of myself that focused inward, I was more able to do good outward, if that makes sense. And that's a delicate balance too. It doesn't mean that you have to chastise yourself and sacrifice all forms of happiness and fulfillment in your life to do good. Um, But I think once we realize that if we can wake up in the morning and balance gratitude with... um, with an attitude of it's not about me. I think that that's when we start to plant those seeds of selflessness and servitude that grow and foster because so many things in life right now, water the seeds of pride and selfishness and self-centeredness. Everything Mm. we see with social media, all the messages that are sent around with whatever you want to see and believe and our internal desires with all those things set aside, we want to be, the main characters we want to be in the spotlight we want to imagine ourselves as the hero the um and we have those cinematic expectations we have these grandiose views of things at least i know i do where we have those fantasies of everything working out and oftentimes it's the it's the little things that have that really big impact i mean one person holding a door open or smiling at someone could do so much more good than me walking 300 plus miles with a canoe on my back. Um, Mm. So I think the sooner that we, the sooner that we can love ourselves, but put God first and put others first, that's when we start to sow those seeds of selflessness and servitude that ultimately create those little ripples that go forth in the bigger waves. And it, it sounds like a recognition just that we're all part of something greater than ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And then and the fact that each and every one of us can show up in our own unique ways through holding the door for a stranger mm-hmm. or smiling at a stranger or whatever that yeah. might be and, really, and, and have a profound impact starting yeah. right now. Yeah. Love is not necessarily always a feeling, it's a choice. Mm. And I think we've lost track of that. We've been fed... At least in my childhood, you know, growing up with different, you know, Disney movies and things like that, love has always looked like attraction or something pretty. But oftentimes, love can be a little bit ugly sometimes. It can be hanging on when things are rough. And it might be being with someone where you don't like them at that time if you've made that commitment to them. And so, um, yes, love is a feeling. But I think we need to understand that love is a choice and acting with compassion, which is just action and empathy, is probably one of the greatest weapons we have against suicide and other maladies in the world. Well, Evan, um, thank you so much for, for your time um, and, and just for the ways that you're showing up in the world out there. Um, it's it's, an incredi- it's incredibly beautiful to hear you talk about it. and. Um, just grateful that um, you carved out some time to hang out with all of us here tonight. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. And, and I didn't make you sing, so you got out of here without I'm singing. I'm really, oh, 
I was worried. I've been sweating about that. I was like, please don't. That'll be for the next. That'll be for the next episode. The next time right. I'll be on. I'll start getting lessons. All right. Deal. And uh, you take care of you over there. All right. You too. Thank you. My friends, want to let you know that if you or someone you know is in need of help, you can call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And as always, a reminder that this podcast is not meant to replace work with a therapist. And so if you feel you need it, I encourage you to reach out to a trained mental health professional. All right. I'll talk to you soon.